Sure. Right, I think we're live. Okay. Beverages are right there. I've got mine. So let me pass one. Luke? Alright, don't be bashful. Sorry to freak you out in jeans and priests are people too. Laundry laundry is important. Despite what some of my priest brothers think. <laughs> Yeah. Prost is good, but this is a dunkel. Um, okay, I need it. Look, we have one of those handouts, too. All right, everybody. We ready? All right, let's pray and we'll start. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Lord, we bless you and praise you. Thank you for your goodness. We pray tonight for our country. We pray for an end to the virus. Pray for all those who are suffering from it. Pray for our families across the country. That Thanksgiving would be a moment of healing and of unity. Bless our time together tonight. May it draw us close to you as always. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So a couple of things before our main topic as usual. Um, so we have that wheel's locked. Um, so a couple of things to touch on. There are three groups of people generally in RCIA, maybe four. Um, so we have catechumens, candidates, So catechumens, candidates, and compromisers. We make up hard words just to make it difficult. So what this is, is um, we also have at Lourdes, I always invite people who are already Catholic just to come to go deeper into their faith. Um, I think most people, for most of us, this is what, just what we need to understand what it means to be Catholic. Uh, we all kind of need the same thing. So, a catechumen means you're someone who has not been baptized yet. And we mean that of any denomination, basically. There are a few exceptions to that. Um, if you were baptized as a Mormon or as a Seventh-day Adventist, something like that, um, there might be, we might be talk to you. But basically, 
if you've been baptized, you're not going to fall in that category. Because um, baptism is only once. Candidates means you're baptized, but not Catholic. So you were baptized in a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church or an evangelical church, um, but not in the Catholic church. <clears throat> Confirmandi are those you were baptized, but in the Catholic Church. Now, when all that will happen is in the spring. So going back to very, very, very early Christianity, the night that people became Christians was, if you weren't a child was on the night of Easter. And it's the night going into Easter. We call it the Easter Vigil. That's when we really bring new Catholics into the church. Um, let's just pause. Any questions about that? So I'll give you a quick answer. We're going to talk about this in depth when we talk about baptism. But great question. So why do we why do we baptize babies? And here's this might be the full answer. I don't know because you know I me mean, like we get to baptism. There's so much to cover. We might not cover it. Um, the reason the Catholics baptize infants. There's a couple of answers to this. So if you're coming from a Protestant background, Protestants believe that. What is it that saves you if you're a Protestant? Okay, Jesus, we believe that too, right? But what, what else? Faith, right? Faith alone. So that's, there's two big dogmas that the Protestant Reformation taught. Faith alone and Scripture alone. Catholics believe in faith and they believe in Scripture, but not alone. So for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, baptism saves you. Um, Jesus, in Mark chapter 16, says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Uh, and we'll see a lot of those things. But the basic reason why is that Protestants think, if you're really going to be a Christian, we have to wait till you can decide that. Has anybody ever thought that? Everyone on the internet is raising their hand. Um, yeah, like it's a natural thought, isn't it? It's an easy thought, like, we should let our child decide until they're old enough. And I, I, I can sympathize with that. Here's the Catholic argument against that, though. You ever met those parents, and if you're one of them, like, you don't have to admit it to me. But you know those parents who are like, we're not going to teach our child anything. We're just going to let them decide. I would argue that's a recipe for disaster. Right? Like... God gave parents, or gave children parents, for a reason. Like, for good or for ill, your parents love you. And when you are two, or three, or four, or five, or whatever, I don't have kids. Um, your parents are there for a reason. They love you, and they're there to help you learn what life is about. 
And so Pope Benedict says, this is the first answer, I'll give you the second. The first answer is that if faith is a burden, we have to wait till someone can accept that as an adult. But what if, what if you guys, I forget, you guys aren't engaged yet, are you? I'm, I'm going to keep doing that to you. Um, but let's say you guys get married, you have, um, you have a baby, and if I come to you because I'm a wealthy priest, right, and I'm like, hey, I want to give your baby a million-dollar trust fund, what would you say to that? Yeah. You wouldn't say, oh, hold on. Let's wait until they're 14. And what Pope Benedict says is that this reveals something about how we approach faith. Is that if a child, if we see faith as a burden and a responsibility alone, then yeah, you can't just put that on a kid. But what if faith is a gift? If it's a gift, then every parent will want that for their child. So that's the first answer. Catholics, right, and Protestants would agree with this. The faith is a gift. Are you going to have to choose it when you're older? Of course you are. Like, it doesn't mean one and done, you know, when you're, you know, 15 and 23 and the ripe old age of 40 when you're at your finest. Um, you still have to choose it. You have to choose to be a Christian. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't give children what we think is best for them. Okay, but the, the more important answer is this, and this leads into what we're going to talk about a lot um, hopefully tonight, as I always say, um, the, uh, so faith, in Matthew chapter 5, I think it's Matthew 5, 7, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, to fulfill it. So what we're going to see is that Jesus doesn't, the, the things of the Old Testament, he doesn't just get rid of them, he fulfills them. And so, how in the Old Testament... What's the sign that someone is a member of the family? How do they enter the covenant? How is someone, what's the sign someone's a member of the covenant? Circumcision. Circumcision. So obviously that's a male thing, and St. Paul is going to make a big deal that in the New Testament it's for men and women, and women were part of the covenant in the Old Testament, but there wasn't a physical sign. In the New Testament there is. And so when is a, when is a male boy circumcised in Judaism? On the eighth day. And here's the point. You're not, you are not made a member of a family by choice. Right? All of you who are parents, when you had children, you did not ask their consent. Um, and what we believe as Catholics is that no one can make themselves a member of a family is a profound gift from God. That doesn't mean that you can't, you know, we always hope it's not the case, you know, but some kids grow up and they hit 18 and they say, Mom and Dad, I hate you and I'm off. And you can't fully control that. But no one can make themselves a member of family. So in the Old Covenant, circumcision is a sign that you belong to the family. And that's the best thing ever, right? The best, we all know this, in, in the modern world, but through all of human history, there's no guarantee on life. 
for those of you who have kids or those of you who will have kids, um, so basically everyone but me, um, there's no guarantee that your kids are going to be perfect. But the best chance they probably have, the best thing you could possibly do for them, is to love them before they're born, give them a stable home they're born into, and love them the best you can. That's how Catholics view membership in the church. And the reason we think it is that way is because that's what the New Testament says. So Jews, they didn't become a part of the covenant by living a perfect life. They were circumcised on the eighth day and they were brought into the family. And they said, hey, we love you because we love you. Here's the way that we believe you should behave in our family. So, Jews are circumcised on the eighth day in Colossians. Chapter 2. And let's just pull it out so you know I'm not lying. Um, just can turn there. Okay, so Colossians 2. Paul says this. So he says, starting in verse 10 to Colossians 2.10, he says, You have come to the fullness of life in him, in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That, that's a way of referring to God in a Jewish way, without hands. That's what that means. By putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. You were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And Paul's going to go on in Colossians 2 and 3 about this. But basically, so Paul, what he says is that circumcision, the new circumcision, is baptism. This is why when you go upstairs in our church, the baptismal font's at the back of the church. And the reason for that is because the way you enter into the family of the church is through baptism. We're going to talk about that more in depth. We're going to talk about Romans chapter 6. We're going to talk about Matthew 28. We're going to talk about John chapter 3, where Jesus talks about it a lot. We're going to talk about Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3. We'll do all of that, but that's my quicker answer. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Yeah. Please. Um, so how do you, okay, so if you're coming from a Protestant side and you're a Protestant mm -hmm. candidate. Yep. Um, and you're talking about groups not necessarily looking to be baptized, but when you put with them maybe. I only ask this because I don't know if I was reading this somewhere or something. But like, what if it wasn't said the right way? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, what if it wasn't said the right way? That's a good question. So there's a, there's a principle in Catholic theology. Um, so the matter and the form matter. If we, if we had a really, if, we, if someone was really concerned about that, we would rebaptize them. Okay. And we call that a conditional baptism. I don't need to write that. Um, conditional just means... You can only be baptized once, and we'll get to why that is. Um, but if someone's like, 
I, I think I was baptized. I'm not sure it was the right words. I'm not sure that it really happened. Or whatever reason, we would do a baptism and just kind of just in case. Um, but the church just wants us to understand that baptism is once. And the reason we'll see that is that, the reason we want to say that is that um, Jesus died once, and you don't have to redo things. And because baptism is so necessary, and we'll see why that's the case, the church has, <clears throat> with its authority, has said, we recognize baptisms in a very broad way. In a very broad way. So, but if someone was unsure, if you're really, if you're concerned about it, we would baptize you with the understanding that if it really happened the first time, that's valid, and that was it. That's the one and done. So, yeah. You don't have to be baptized in the Catholic faith to become Catholic. Nope. What are the odds of it being done wrong the first time? I mean, why wouldn't you just do a conditional every time? Um, so basically, like, what we believe is it's very low. So, like, very when things are super important, the church doesn't want things to be dependent on, like, a really high standard. Right? So, for instance, the Mass. If you become Catholic, you'll go to, you might go to some Mass someday where things seem a little weird. Right, and where the priest is like, like, it just feels weird, not as good looking as Father Brian, <laughs> you know, whatever. No, just kidding. But where there's weird things said, you know, like, was that valid? Well, the Mass is so important to the Catholic life that the Church really teaches for a valid Mass because we live by, by the Eucharist. The Eucharist is our very heart and soul. It's so important. The Church says, basically, if you have bread and wine and water, and the priest says, this is my body and this is my blood at some point, it's a valid mass. If it's a real priest, it's real bread, wine, and water, and he says those words. So similarly with baptism, all you need, and the, the, the other tension is, we, Christ did things a certain way. So he's God, I'm not, so I can't say mass with pizza and beer. You know, some people out there get the idea like, we got to win more people over. Let's spice things up. You know, let's, let's switch it up. Let's do pizza and beer. You can't do that. Like, Jesus instituted this a certain way. <clears throat> and so we keep it pretty basic, but there is a line. So it's something like that. And with, with baptism, the line is water, and it's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that essentially the person who's doing it, they don't even actually have to, they don't even have to be a baptized Christian as long as they intend what the church intends, which is to really to baptize someone. So it's a very low standard. Which I love. Yeah. Totally unrelated. Okay. <laughs> I thought of this in Mass on Sunday. How long did it take you to learn to do the incense without knocking? <laughs> I'm just that coordinated. <laughs> How long did it take me to, to learn to not to swing the incense and not have the altar? Um, I don't know. I, I will tell you this, though. <clears throat> Archbishop Shaphugh, when I was a seminarian, I would go to the cathedral mass, and he just had a way that was just so, it was just graceful. And so he's always been my model, where I'm just like, oh, I just want to do incense like Archbishop Shaphugh. Like, 
it's just prayerful, it's graceful. So that's that's my ideal. Okay, any other questions? Nope, okay, so here we go. Um, so, the quick saint story, and then we're in. So, um, St. Francis of Assisi, um, what everyone thinks about St. Francis of Assisi is he's someone who belongs in your garden, and he somehow was like, really, like, he was like best friends with the squirrel that visits. Um, that's a caricature. Francis loved creation, and there's something slightly true about that, but very slightly. So I just want to talk about St. Francis today because I want to tell you about what St. Bonaventure says about him because I've been reading St. Bonaventure, and it's super powerful. It's going to lead to something, hopefully tonight, that I want to get to. So St. Francis, what happened with him, you have to go to Assisi. Assisi is magical. When you go to Assisi, you will never want to leave. If you walk to Assisi, you feel like you are in the 12th century. It's magnificent. Um, I've been there three times. Anyway, so Francis was a uh, son of kind of a wealthy merchant. And he left that to follow Christ. And one of the things we're going to see when we talk about Protestantism is that um, the church was really broken in Francis's time really broken. Priests were corrupt. There were problems left and right. And Francis, what um, Luther and Francis both saw was something wrong. And they, they are, if you look at history, they weren't always conscious of this, but the paths they took were radically different. So Martin Luther is going to say, look at how awful the church is. And he goes, he goes after the church, and a lot of things he was right about. Francis, what happens, right, is he abandons everything, and instead of looking outwards, he just loved God. <laughs> I love it. Talking about saints always makes me emotional. Francis, it's incredible when you go to Assisi. Francis left everything behind because he realized that there was something more important. So he went and he lived in this place that would become known as the Portsiuncula. And it was this little broken down church that was completely no roof and fallen into disrepair. So you've all seen this cross. I should have brought one tonight, but I didn't. <clears throat> but there's the cross of, it's, it's called the San Damiano cross. And, um, Everyone thinks it's Franciscan, but it was before him. But that one of those crosses was in his church that he was living in. And what happened was Francis is poor, he's living there, and he's growing in holiness, and he has this powerful love for God. And Jesus spoke to him from the cross. I have seen that actual cross. It is in the church of um, St. Catherine. No, that's not true. Sorry, St. Clair in Assisi. It's in a side chapel there. You can visit it today, the actual cross that Jesus spoke through to speak to St. Francis. It will send chills up and down your spine. St. Francis, by the way, I don't know about your high school experience, but like you learn all these like major world figures. The world today would look radically different if it weren't for St. Francis of Assisi. 
but we've decided in public school that it's bad to study Christians, so we don't study him. But he changed the world forever in a huge, huge way. So the cross speaks to him, and does anybody remember what, is, what, is the, what does Jesus say to Francis on the cross? You guys can answer. I just said you can't answer. <laughs> I said, Francis, build my church. And Francis did what I would do. Which I'm not comparing myself to St. Francis, okay? <laughs> but what he did is he took, he took the Lord literally, and he started rebuilding the church he was living in. And again, you can I have been in that church. If they moved it down the hill. Um, it's inside a basilica. They built a giant church over the top of it now. But it's called the Portiuncola. And St. Francis rebuilt it with his, his own two hands. It's incredible. Um, so he rebuilt it. There is a replica of it at Franciscan University of Steubenville in Steubenville, Ohio, the most beautiful town in the Midwest, which is a joke if you've ever been there. It's really not. But anyway, so Francis did that. Long story short, Francis didn't start out to change the church. And the great saints are almost always like this. They didn't start out to change the church. They just loved God. They just love God, and they didn't. And right now, like, right, our world, everyone's pointing fingers, right? Like, somebody else, you're awful, you're awful, and everybody's pointing fingers. What the great saints did is they didn't point fingers, they just wanted to be holy. And Francis, I don't want to say it's too strongly, but essentially he saved the church by just loving God and going to holiness. So, but what I want to get to is that at a certain point in Francis's life, he goes up on a mountain, and he has a mystical experience where a seraphim, seraphim is a Hebrew word for one of the angels, one of the types of angels. It's the six-winged angels that appear in Isaiah chapter 6. Um, but a seraphim appears, and Francis receives the stigmata. And this is what I wanted to get to. The stigmata, what it is... So there have been a couple of saints in history that we know of that have had this. The stigmata is where a saint mystically receives the wounds of Jesus Christ. Deep stuff. So Francis has a moment of mystical union with God. And for the rest of his life, he had the nail marks of Christ. Um, incredible. St. Catherine of Siena had this, by the way. Um, Padre Pio is the saint in our own time. This is crazy. People don't know what to do with this. Like, I, I, I don't know where everybody's at, but like sometimes in like RCIA, it's like, is any of this real? Go look at Padre Pio. Padre Pio died in like the 70s. He had the wounds of Jesus Christ. And when he said mass, he bled. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. So here's what I want to get about. What is, the, what, get to, what is that about? So St. Bonaventure, who is another saint, follows St. Francis. He's a Franciscan, he lived a poor life, and I've been reading a bunch of his writings recently. And here's what he says. He says, the whole Christian life, what everything is about, is that God loves us so much, and what, that God's perfect holiness, his perfect love, his perfect goodness, his perfect mercy, everything he has and is, 
He wants to see that reflected in us. Right? If you're a parent, when you love your children, you probably don't want to see everything you have. Like, probably you're like your faults you don't want to see reflected in your children. But you, your children, you want them to be the best of what's in you. And even far better. God, there's something like that. So God, what he does, and St. Bonaventure says this, is the whole Christian life is that God wants to press his form into you. He wants to press his form into you. So St. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. When you look at the saints, and people say this all the time, when you meet someone who is truly holy, people are... When you see, like, pictures of John Paul II, it's kind of funny, it's just like me. When you see people, people who met John Paul II, you don't know why, but everyone cries. And he's not really doing anything. He's just like, hi, nice to meet you. Yes, thank you for coming. God bless you. And everyone's bawling their eyes out. And, and here's the thing. When you meet someone who is really holy, you feel like you just met That's not an accident. The whole Christian life is the re and the reason God created you was he wanted to make you everything you're meant to be. Not someone else. You don't have to be like someone else. You don't have to be St. Francis. But in your own unique way, the perfection of God's love and truth and goodness is meant to be stamped into you. So St. Bonaventure says, that's the whole Christian life. And some of the saints, like St. Francis, when they surrender their life to such a high degree, it gets to such an incredible level of likeness to Christ that it actually even becomes physical. Amazing. Absolutely profound. Um, so how do you get like that? And so one last thing about this that St. Bonaventure says, if you've ever had, like if you had like a press and you wanted to press something in, if you tried to press something into something already hardened, it'd be really difficult. In fact, you would break it. It wouldn't work. So to, to press an image into something, it has to be able to receive the image. And so St. Bonaventure says, this is the Christian life, what faith is about, is about losing yourself. Right? Christianity is not about, and I've said this before, and I'll say it all year, Christianity is not checking the boxes. It's not an intellectual exercise of three and three is six, and I get it, so therefore I'm a Christian. Christianity means I have to lose my life to become malleable so that God can press his image into me and so I leave behind my selfishness. I leave behind my lust, my egoism, my pride. I learn how to be lowly. And so Bonaventure says the first step in that whole process is poverty. And he says that's the essential step. And here's, and if that's freaking you out, you're like, oh my gosh, why did I come to RCIA? I do think poverty in general is something important for Christians. 
but it doesn't always mean materially. I will, I will encourage you as class goes on, we're supposed to love money less than other people. But what it primarily means is that it's not just money, but it's that I empty myself. I become poor in the sense that I don't own my life. I surrender myself. Okay, I've been praying with that for like the last two weeks. Um, stuff. Um, I have a couple questions. One of them is completely unrelated. So I'll start with the other ones that you do with those. It's, he said, what do you mean by, I think he was referring, when you talked about the examples, when he left everything behind. I think he, he left the Catholic Church, but kept the faith. Yeah, so when Francis left everything behind, what I mean is worldly things. So Francis renounced his inheritance, and his, his family wanted him, like, and this is a normal family thing, his family wanted him to be wealthy and successful and all those things, which there's nothing wrong with any of them, but Francis wanted something greater. And his family didn't understand that, and they tried to force it on him, and he left that to follow God. So similarly, like St. Thomas Aquinas, what he does, he decided to be a poor um, uh, Dominican friar. His family's wealthy, and they said, you can't do that, that's beneath you. When you love someone, you lose things. This is, this is so central. I know we're, this isn't the main topic for tonight, but this is so central. To love means you must lose your life. This is a Christian insight. If you, if you want to love someone and keep everything you have, you will never love anyone. To love another means to lose your and, and the world will always say, don't do that, that's terrible. So one of my favorite quotes is from Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde says, a cynic is someone who knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing. A cynic is someone who knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing. So maybe when you got married, or maybe you found something that you desired in life, and you said, oh my gosh, if I could have that, that's everything. I'd, I'd leave this behind. That's the secret of the Christian. Is that when I lose my life, when I leave behind pleasure and love for money and egoism and pride and these things, the world's going to say, that looks terrible. And the weird thing is, you will be so joyful. People always wonder, like Mother Teresa, like, Mother Teresa is like this like three and a half foot tall woman picking up lepers in like sewage filled gutters of Calcutta. And she's like, isn't life amazing? <laughs> and you're like, you're crazy. What is wrong with you? This is what it's about. When you love, you lose your life. Okay, second question. Anyone else in the, in the audience for me? No. In our studio audience. In our studio audience. Mm -hmm. um, okay, this is back to the on baptism, in extreme circumstances, for example, a baby is dying in a mother's arms before the baby is baptized. Can the baby be baptized by the mother's saliva where water is unavailable? My understanding is yes, yeah, so <clears throat> this is an extreme example. But, um, so again, the church has a low standard because we're going to see when we get to baptism that it's really essential. So the proper form, if you have a baby... The proper way to have baptized is by a priest or a deacon. 
but in extreme circumstances meaning danger of death. Baptize that baby. Use anything you have that is, use saliva, use water, water first. Water first, but use, but use anything you have and baptize that baby. Um, we don't live in fear, right? Like, I don't, we trust God, but again, like, if you want to give your child something good, if you have a baby that has a health condition when they're born, there's danger of death, baptize that baby. Anyone can do it. Just put some water on the baby's head and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Just do it. Nike, which is a Greek word which means to conquer. Okay. Wonderful. Okay, anybody else? Yeah. So you had an opinion when you said without uh, France, we wouldn't, the world would be much different. Yep. What, what was it that you gave the world? So Francis renewed the world because, and again, and I really think this, whenever I meet someone who says, and I meet people sometimes, and they, and they have good intentions, but they say, Father Brian, I want to be... I want to be something really big. I want to be a star. I want to be, you know, people will say to me, this is like hilarious. It always happens. Every priest gets this. They'll be like, when are you going to be a bishop? And I'm like, dear Lord, help us all. <laughs> right? Um, you shouldn't want to be something big. The Christian life, God, man wants to become something big. God wants to become small. A great sign of a real Christian is they're not looking to be big. They're looking to be small. They want to serve. They don't want recognition for it. They want to be like Mary. Mary, in a hidden, loving way, served. That's the Christian life. Francis sought to do that, but by his union with God, amazing things happened. So, he, so people started following him. He never thought that would happen. He didn't seek to, out to do that. Um, and then Pope Urban the something, 13th, Pope Urban the 436th, um, one of the, the Pope had a vision, so Francis went to Rome to ask to, that his group of poor beggars would be allowed to be a religious order in the church. And it was an uphill battle. It was unlikely that, that the Pope would say yes to this. And the Pope had a vision of Francis holding up the church. He had never met Francis before. He met him like the next day. And what happened was, through Francis's holiness, holiness is contagious. When you meet someone who loves God, it's so inspiring. You just, you're like, oh my gosh, there is meaning to life. I was not made just to have a nice retirement at, you know, Shady Acres or whatever it's called. Like, I was not made for that. I was not made for a nice car. I was made to change the world. And you do that by loving God and loving others. So Francis transformed formed the church's love for God. And he renewed that. And in his own lifetime, the Franciscan friars, I, I don't know the numbers, but it was insane. Like, no one should have this type of success except a saint. But Francis, in his own lifetime, he didn't seek to do any of this, but in his own lifetime, there were thousands and thousands of men who had left everything behind to go live lives of poverty, celibacy, and obedience, to love God, and to spread the gospel. And it changed. In Europe, like, would have, we, it would have been radically different without him. Uh, he revitalized the whole church. Um, it's pretty cool. And in moments right now, it's a dark moment in church history. 
There's a lot of similarities actually to our time in Francis's. So one of you, step it up. Step it up. Yeah. Simple reflection. The uh, so the blessed. Somebody announced that the blessed was that you're on the path to Sandra and you're on two or three miracles. Yet? Yeah. So there's they need another one. I forget the exact. I think it's. I think they have two. They need like one more. But the but also the distinction is so so saint just means holy in Latin sanctus, um, but in the way we use that word now, a saint when we say someone's a blessed, that comes from Matthew chapter five, where Jesus gives eight beatitudes. He says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit; theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful; they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart; they will see God." On and on and on. He gives eight blessings. These are, these are those who are blessed. So when the church says someone is a blessed, what it means is they're on the way to being declared a saint. Um, and, but when they're declared a blessed, we, the church is like, this person is in heaven. But a saint, when they're, when they're raised to that next level as a, as a title, it's not us who do that. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's just something for us. But declaring them a saint in the full sense means that, like, we might have someone right in Denver we're like, man, like, you know, Steph Devaney is so important for Colorado, and people are so proud of her, and she was a real saint. And the church says, yep, she's a blessed. If she was made to of actual sainthood, that means that her example is not just relevant for Denver, but it's so important that it's for the entire church all across the world. So That's the distinction. Like the lady Greeley? Julia Greeley, yep. Is she blessed? I forget. I think she's venerable, but I forget. I'm. You're catching me in all my like weeks. Oh, so venerable would be somewhere on that path. It's on the path. Okay. So Julia venerable. Greeley, what? Venerable. Venerable. She was a slave who was freed and gave her life. She had like I just learned this recently. She had like one eye. Yeah. Like, horrible accident. Right? Maybe it was. I don't know. Maybe it was abuse. I don't know. But anyway, she lived in Denver. She's on the way to sainthood. Um, it's pretty cool. She's buried at the cathedral, or by the cathedral right now in downtown Denver. That's why we never get anywhere. Because of you people. Um, what's a good book to recommend on Saint Francis' life? So I'm about to read this. I have not read it. The first biography of Saint Francis was written by Saint Bonaventure. So Bonaventure lived in like the next generation after Saint Francis. And so Bonaventure wrote the first one. Um, if you want a really light read, it might be mixed. It probably is mixed with a little bit of legends, but it's charming. Um, and a lot of it is also true. There's a book called The Little Flowers of St. Francis of Assisi, and it will melt your heart and inspire you. The Little Flowers of Assisi. Yeah. That sounds nice. It's beautiful. And then also, one more biography. G.K. Chesterton wrote one, uh, a biography of St. Francis, so... That would also be good. His uh, poems have a really good uh, audio book. Thank you, yes. It's like, uh, like voices and... Yep. I forget there was a good word, but audio book was like a, almost like a play. Yeah, Formed has an audio drama yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on St. Francis, and they won all kinds of awards for it. Yeah, it was and they, they, I mean, this is like, and it sounds kind of weird, like, but they have like professional actors from like London and New York who do audio doing the life of St. Francis, so that would be a great, it's freeform.org, you can put, there's an app on your phone, 
You can turn off your Metallica and Britney Spears in your car and be inspired, be holy. Okay, is that it? Okay, so here we go. So, uh, one step forward, two steps back. So last week, I promised you I'd come back answer for numbers five. Um, I'm not going to read these, but on your quote, on your sheet, I put two quotes from uh, biblical scholars who are very impressive scholars talking about the question I asked last week about numbers five. Um, the second one especially I thought was very, very well written. Um, but I'm just going to leave that to you to read. Um, and it's basically what it's going to say is that like, it looks to us as modern men and women like, oh my gosh, look at how barbaric this is. It just goes after women. And the whole point is that in the ancient world, this, this process was actually meant to be a protection for women against men who just had all the rights. And this actually removes the power of men to just accuse their wives of adultery. And it allows them to have a fair hearing. And it takes it out of the hand of their husband. So that's, read that. That's really good. Okay, so here's where we're at. So, Genesis 12, we talked about the three promises. Okay, who's got the three promises? What are the three promises God made to Abraham? Nation, kingdom, and, and blessing, right? So when does when is that fulfilled that the Israel becomes a nation? Moses. And then God's going to fulfill the promise that he would make Abraham's descendants into a kingdom. When is that going to happen? David. David. So here's where we're picking up tonight is with David. So if you look at your sheet, 2 Samuel 7 has that bold print there. So 2 Samuel 7, every year I say this. This is one of those Bible chapters that's kind of, you know when like before um, we had GPS and MapQuest and stuff and Google Maps? When you gave directions, sometimes it's hard for people to remember street names. And a lot of people would be like, okay, you're going to Our Lady of Lords, right? Um, you're, I don't even, you think of landmarks. You're like, okay. You're going to be on Evans, go past the big gold spire at DU. Um, and then when you see the Waldorf School, take a left. If you hit Harvard Gulch, you've gone too far. Right? Second Samuel 7 for me is a landmark in the Bible. And here's the way you remember it. Who is, has anybody seen the Sandlot? The Sandlot. If you haven't seen The Sandlot, you haven't lived, um, and you can't be Catholic. Uh, no, The Sandlot's great. So in The Sandlot, this ball, baseball goes over the fence, and there's this great scene where it like, goes into slow-mo. You know what I'm talking about. Best movie. I love The Sandlot. It's so good. And it goes over the, the, and they're talking about how if a ball goes over the fence, this dog's going to get it, and it will be there forever. <laughs> Forever. Second Samuel 7, Sandlot. And I'll show you why. So let's read this. So this is, uh, God's going to send his prophet Nathan to King David. So therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. 
I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name. By the way, when in, in Genesis 12, that's the language God uses with Abraham for the second promise. He says, I will make your name great. So that's why I put in italics. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. And here's the key point. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So David here in 2 Samuel 7, he wants to build a house for the Lord is the context. And the house for the Lord is the temple. But God's going to use a wordplay here. So, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Right? When the house is a kingdom. Um, he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's a wordplay here. Where house is being used for the temple, but also for a dynasty. So when you study in medieval Europe, or if you study ancient Europe, or ancient Egypt, um, a dynasty is oftentimes referred to as a house. The House of Windsor, the House of Hanover, the House of the Habsburgs. That's what this is about. So God, David here is going to realize that God is giving to him the second promise of Abraham. So verse 13, I, he shall build a house for my name. Solomon, the son of David, will build the temple. So Solomon is going to build the house in that sense. But God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay? It's going to be really important tonight. Forever. I will be a father to him. Skip down with me for time's sake to verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I cannot emphasize this enough. If you don't get this, you will misread the New Testament. If you don't understand this promise, you will understand what Jesus is about. You will misunderstand what he is doing in his lifetime and what the entire New Testament is about. So that second promise is of kingdom. What happens, to make a long story short, is that the Jews begin to think the promise is going to fail. So David's kingdom is established. He's the great king of Israel. By the way, like, 
people you would like doubt about this, the archaeological evidence of David's kingdom is overwhelming. They find stuff from David's kingdom like every year in Israel. It's amazing. Um, but so David has a son. His son is Solomon. Solomon's going to build a temple. We're going to talk about that. Probably not tonight because we never make enough progress. But probably next week. Um, Solomon builds a temple. Now here's, here's a question no one can ever answer, so don't feel guilty if you can't. Does anybody know Solomon's son? Steph, focus missionary. Solomon's son is Jonathan. No. <laughs> I, I don't know. So Solomon has a son. It's I highly recommend this for your. No, Samson's a judge. Oh. Um, the hair guy. Yeah. <laughs> huh? Yeah, he's back in the judges. So, so uh, Solomon has a son. Um, and his son is named, your next son's name will be Jeroboam. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't know who you are, Jeroboam. <laughs> so, and you don't have to remember the names. The names aren't important. But Solomon has a son named Jeroboam. And just because the Bible wants to confuse you, here's how the story goes. Solomon has a son. He's a terrible king. He doesn't follow the rules that God gives for kings. Neither did Solomon. True. Um, Deuteronomy uh, 16 and 18. That's, I won't go too deep right now. But um, so Solomon, and this is going to become, oh, this, there's so many things I want to like, go into. Um, there's a civil war in Rehoboam's time. Rehoboam is a bad king. And so just to confuse you, the other person who starts a rival kingdom that causes a civil war inside of Israel is named, um, oh, I did that wrong. This is Rehoboam and Jeroboam. I always just think to get it right, and I did it wrong. You know how I remember it? I always try to think of R and S go together. So Solomon's son is Rehoboam. Jeroboam is his rival, of course. But here's why this matters. So there's a civil war. You're not going to spend too much time on this. But there's a civil war. And what happens is Israel is divided. There are two tribes. You know how many tribes are total in Israel? Twelve. Two of them stay here. The, the tribe of Judah, which is the largest tribe, and the tribe of Benjamin. They stay there. And so Judah is one of the tribes. This is where we get the word Jew. It's from Judah. And the reason it comes from that tribe and not Benjamin is because Judah is like a thousand times bigger than the tribe of Benjamin. Just a massive tribe. Ten tribes break off. So there's a civil war. Now just hang with me. Yeah. And that was just a power struggle between those two? 
It is. It's a power struggle. There's a lot more to it. If, if we were doing a semester-long course, we'd go into detail here. But what happens is that both of these, so what you begin to have in the Bible is, is it will talk about Judah. It will refer, it gets a little confusing, but it's not that bad. Um, the Bible will start to refer to this part of Israel just as Judah. And just to confuse you, it will refer to this part of it as Israel. And so that happens. There's a break-off. And you don't have to remember any of this, but I just want you to get the story because it's going to all come together here in a minute. So what happens then is that these tribes, all, all 12, they are unfaithful to God. They're absolutely unfaithful. And so in the year 722 B.C., the Assyrians which is modern-day Syria. The Assyrians conquer the northern ten tribes in the year 722 B.C. And they marry, they intermarry them with other nations, and they do all kinds of things. This is last time we talked a little bit about the Samaritan woman at the well. The Samaritans are people who are derived from this group, but they've married with other nations. The, the, the two tribes in the south, they're a little better for a little while, but they're just as bad. And I know, just hang with me, I know this is a lot. They are conquered in the year 587 B.C. Does anybody know who conquered them? Babylon. Good, Babylon. Psalm 137, I think it is. Remember the sublime song? By the rivers of Babylon. That's, they're, they're taking Babylon. And Psalm 137 is about that. Okay, here's why all this matters. So, the kingdom is gone. But what did God promise to David? Forever. See, that's the only thing you're going to remember from RCI. <laughs> so God had promised, he had promised to his people, David, you will have a king on your throne. Your kingdom will last forever. So, Israel disobeys they're, they're, they're punished by God, and the kingdom looks like it's gone. Everything is lost. They have despair. So now look at your handout. Next quote. So, here in Babylon, while they're there, there's a prophet who is in Babylon, who's a Jewish prophet. His name is Daniel. He's one of the, the Jewish prophets. And so the bottom of the front side of your sheet, in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, Daniel has a vision of a gold statue, and there's a lot to it. I'm not, I don't want to go too deep. But there's a prophecy about a kingdom. 
So Daniel here is talking to the king in exile, and he says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. One more. Well, let's, let's pause there, actually. We'll go to that one in a second. That's like a big punchline. Okay, this is so freaking cool. Two classes ago, I asked you a question about this. But let, let's just bring it up, see if anybody has a good answer. How does the New Testament start? With the genealogy of Christ. With the genealogy of Christ. After what we just talked about, why does the New Testament begin with the genealogy of Jesus Christ? To say that he is the king that is promised to set up the kingdom that will last forever. Bam. You're supposed to get the answer wrong, but you're, you're right. Yeah, to show that he is that king. So the Jews in this period, where they're waiting, they say, God, you promised forever. Forever. You promised forever. Where is your promise? They, they believed God would be faithful, and somehow he would restore that promise. And the person they believed that would restore that promise, they started referring to that person as the Messiah. That's who they expected to fulfill this promise. Daniel, this is crazy. Daniel is in exile. God, he starts having visions. And God tells him there's going to be a great king who's going to come. If, again, if we had a semester Bible study, this stuff will blow your freaking mind. It is so powerful, and it shows how God had this plan to redeem the world. And everything was always, from the beginning, it was always about Jesus. So the Jews are waiting for a Messiah. Matthew chapter 1, so I think it's the last quote, flip to your backside. The very last quote, I just put one verse, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. This is the intro verse to the entire New Testament. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Does anybody know what? That's a Hebrew word, Messiah. Does anybody know what the Greek translation of Messiah is? I know you know. It's Christ. So Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? I always joke about that. It sounds blasphemous. I don't mean to be disrespectful, Lord. But you just picture the teaching of Christ. Jesus, anybody? That's not his last name. Christ is the Greek word. It means Messiah. It's a title. So, the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because the second promise of Abraham was that one of his descendants would establish a kingdom and the promise to David is that the, that kingdom would last forever. I didn't put this on here because I ran out of time. 
when Gabriel appears to Mary in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Here's what he says. People miss this, by the way. Even like really good Christians and Catholics, they miss this. So when Gabriel appears to Mary in Luke 1, and here's verse 32, Gabriel is speaking to Mary about who her son will be. He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The New Testament starts with a promise that's been fulfilled. And it gets way better. i do one more thing and then I'll have, we can pause and we can do questions. Um, now i got to remember what I was going to say. I hate when that happens. Um, oh, that's it. So, Jesus preaches about tons of things. So you guys can't answer and you guys can't answer. Anybody else can answer. Um, Jesus talks about a lot of things in the New Testament. Does anybody know what is his number one topic? He has one topic he preaches about way more than anything else. What's Jesus' number one thing he talks about? This is the part where you answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we sit back. There is no back in this classroom. <laughs> there is no back. Okay, anybody want to? You guys know? No? That's what everybody says. Thank you for getting it wrong. I love it. No, no, pun, no pun intended. Okay, so it's not love. Any other guesses? Not forgiveness is also a very common guess. The kingdom of God is what Jesus preaches about. Not even close. There's nothing that comes anywhere near. And what happened, and here's, here's the mistake everybody makes. Jesus shows up, and the first thing he says is he says, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And what everybody thinks, because they don't know the Old Testament, they don't know the story, is they think it means repent because it's time to go to heaven. Because they don't know the story. Okay, last quote, and then I promise we'll do questions. Back the, right above the genealogy quote. There's two of them right together. So that book of Daniel... Daniel, by the way, there's so much to this. Oh, love this stuff. Daniel is given a, a prophecy from God of when the Messiah will come and what it will look like. So in Daniel 7, on the left side of the page, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days as a title for God. And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The quote to your right comes from the night before Jesus Christ died. So at the, sorry, the house of Caiaphas, I've been there. It's incredible. When we go to Israel, you can stand in the place that this happened. The high priest, Caiaphas, is questioning Jesus. They don't like him. They don't like what he's doing. So Jesus is silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, right? The Messiah. The Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. See the bold? Try to like point that out for everybody. The quote that sent Jesus Christ to the cross was a quote from Daniel 7 about the coming of the Messiah and the King. Scripture scholars call this, Jesus still be, after this, he'll go to Pontius Pilate on Good Friday morning. But the scripture scholars will tell you that's the real trial right there. Yeah. But the high priest would have drawn that, that relationship. Daniel is the most popular book. I mean, Isaiah as well. But Daniel was widely read. And here's, here's why, and this is, I didn't want to get too much into this. But Daniel prophesies the number of years before the Messiah comes. And he prophesies there will be 490 years. And that puts you right at the time of Christ. And right in Christ's time, N.T. Wright talks a lot about this. It was a big deal. N.T. Wright talks about how you don't have all these people pretending to be the Messiah or claiming to be the Messiah in Israel before, right about the time of Christ, and within about a hundred years after the time of Christ, it all stops. But right in that time, there's all these people who claim to be the Messiah. You know why? Because he lived. And a very interesting part of history is that when the early Catholicism, when the early Christian church explodes, the, and everybody's becoming Christian. All these people are becoming Christians. The, the Jews forbid people to read the book of Daniel. Because people are reading Daniel and they're connecting the dots and it all lines up. Um, so, I promise we're going to do questions. Jesus, and we're going to talk about how this kingdom is not just an earthly kingdom. It's not just like, okay, Canada invades. That's not what it is. We're going to talk about how this kingdom, it is the kingdom that God promised, but it's so much more. It is not just a political reality. It is so much more. It is a place where God is king. It is a place where men and women are redeemed. It is a place where the world is made we're talking about how Jesus came to bring that kingdom. By the way, I hope, I hope bells are going off. We're going to talk about the papacy and in Matthew 16, 18, right? Jesus is going to talk about his kingdom. 
He's going to say, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is going to talk about the kingdom everywhere. Okay, questions? Yeah. So this might be but it's not dumb. I mean, maybe it is. So these are, these are long time spans. I mean, 587 yes. BC to zero. Mm-hmm. Are we talking about 15 intermediate generations, or is this where the Old Testament talks about people living to 600 years? Are we Great li- question. Are we literally talking about one generation or right. 20? Right. So this is why it's a great question. Um, so, it's so the huge numbers of years we talk about these lives, the people of 600 years, whatever. That's a that's in Genesis, and there's different theories about why that's the case. There's two big ones that I think are the most like credible theories about why do you have the story of Abraham lived to be 800 years old? Why is like what is that about? There's two theories on that. One is that it's so close to the fall. And then death enters the world through the fall. And then if you trace the genealogies, the years of mankind get shorter and shorter. That's one theory. That's not the one I hold to, but I think it makes some sense. The one I hold to, and I don't know, but the one I hold to is that in in Jewish culture, the founders of kind of the human race, it's a way of showing them honor. And so when you hear... Abraham lived 800 years. They didn't live after the Enlightenment. Well, after the Enlightenment in the 18th and 19th century, you and I love numbers. Right? So when, when someone says, what time is it? And I say, it's 6.45. Right? Which it is. So everybody relax. Um, when I say it's 6.45, right? People, if I say it's about 6.45, what we all think immediately is like, well, what do you mean about? Is it 643 or is it 647? And that's that's fine. That's not a bad way to approach things, but it's an enlightenment way. But that doesn't really, people don't think as much that way, at least, until really the 18th century. We love precision, we love exact numbers. The Bible's not like that. So the 490 is not meant to be an exact year. And there's two really cool things about that. Maybe it's, I'll just say one really quick. Um, how do I say this? So the Jews have as every seven years, the Jews have what's called the Sabbath year. So the seventh day is the Sabbath day. What do you do on a Sabbath day? You rest. The Sabbath year, you, you let the entire land rest. You don't grow crops. Everything rests. Well, the Jews have what they call the Jubilee year. So what, what number is Jubilee? Nope. Love it when you get it wrong. It's 50. 50 is Jubilee. And what it is, is the Jubilee is a week of years. So 7 times 7 years is 49. And so the 50 is the crown. And the 50, 50 becomes this number of redemption in Deuteronomy 15 and Leviticus. I want to say 21, but that's probably wrong. But it's around 15 for sure. But the Jubilee is a year where three things happen in the Jubilee. 
debts are forgiven. The word for sin in the New Testament is debt. Ophele uh, mata in Greek. Um, so in the Our Father, when we say forgive us our sins, the literal translation, the literal word in Greek, doesn't say sins or, or um, trespasses. It says debts. So debts are forgiven in the Jubilee year. Slaves are set free. And all land goes back to its original owner. So 490 is in Daniel, uh, in Daniel chapter 9, the language is just like this. Gabriel appears to Daniel, and he says 70 weeks of years. And in the Jewish mind, that sounds a heck of a lot like Deuteronomy 15. And 49 means jubilee. So it's not meant to be an exact number, but it's, we don't think this way because we live in post-scientific and enlightenment culture where we like precision and exact, you know. But it's roughly about right. It's in that range. And when Jesus starts his ministry the, in Luke chapter 4, he quotes Isaiah 61, and it's all about jubilee. And Jesus' mission, I'll get to you, Jesus' mission is um, sins are forgiven, debts, Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are in debt to us. Um, slaves go free. The New Testament teaches that the primary slavery we have is to sin. And the land, with this land is about redemption, and the land goes universal. But the Jubilee becomes the controlling paradigm for Jesus' life. So, I don't know if I answered it, but something like that. The real question was, is almost passing through 15 or 20 generations, or is it like one or two generations for people that are really old? So Matthew traces three sets of 14. So in Matthew 1, at the end of the prophecy, and this is so cool. So at the end of Matthew 1, at the end of the genealogy, um, that's okay, I'll just wipe this on you. Um, at the end of the prophecy, uh, in Matthew 1... In Matthew 117, um, St. Matthew says this. This is the way he puts it. Um, he says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, right? And when I know Babylon, so you read that and you're like, that was the exile, 587 BC, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. Here's why this matters for Matthew. So in Hebrew, we I think we've talked about this. You can't say you know, Father Brian's good, um, Patrick's better, Steph is the best. You can't say that. The way you would say it is you would say, Father Brian's good, Patrick is good, good, Steph is good, good, good. 
Hebrew has numeric values with letters, just like Roman numerals, right, are letters and they have numbers too, right? So the letters in Hebrew have numbers associated with them. Does anybody, any guesses maybe what David's, if you have the numbers of David's name, any guesses what the number would be? 14. It's 14. So the New Testament begins with three 14s, which to a Jewish mind means David... Jesus is the ultimate king. He's the Messiah. That's how the New Testament sees it. I will say that if you dig really deep, right, if you study the scriptures as long as I have, you're not going to find an exact scientific answer the way that you and I would like it, but that's, that's how Matthew. Okay, sorry, yeah. Really good. So it's along the same lines because you say Abraham, you know, lived in the same neighborhood for like 800 years or something. Long, long time. Yeah. And, but. Not, actually, the Abraham's more like 110. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the thing is, like, there are a lot of that in the um, Old Testament and stuff. But do you think it's on more of a division of generations of ages that, like, how old Abraham was, was, um, that age was calculated to like kind of pass the torch on to David. Mm -hmm. So like those 14 generations compiled on years were considered Abraham and then maybe David. Yeah, I think it's a fair question. I, I think for us though, we just ask questions a way that Matthew's not asking the question that way. Mm -hmm. Matthew's, Matthew's more concerned about this. Mm -hmm. And genealogy is really important to Jews because it's how they trace, for instance, like priesthood. But they're not, and, and come back at me, because I'm not sure I'm, I might have missed something. But I'm not, I don't think that Matthews is worried about kind of like, what are the, is it exactly 14? His point is he's trying to say this. Right, right, right. That it's David, David, David all yeah. the way through. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I just thought that was interesting why the Bible wouldn't talk about those generations as well. So it does. So in the sense of, it, and so like it doesn't talk about like, you know, it doesn't have like boomers and Gen X and... Yeah, like the 14 generations yeah. between Abe and... It doesn't do that. What it does do, though, is between that first verse and then that last verse of the genealogy, it lists out the names mm -hmm. and the descendants of Christ. And so I actually have it partially memorized because there's a Christmas song I like. It's really tacky, but I like it. And it's a guy who sings it, and he just puts it to music. He's like, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac, he had Jacob. Jacob, he had Judah and his kin. Anyway, I can, I can sing it all. It would be painful. But, but that's how the New Testament does it, is it walks through the names. Um, and, and part of that is that Jesus is entering into a story. And if you know the names in the genealogy, if you know the Bible well enough, one of the cool things is Jesus is entering into a very broken story. And there's a lot of names in there that are not just like, oh, Saint so-and-so had Saint so-and-so had Saint so-and-so. It's like, oh, that was a bad dude. <laughs> like, this guy was in trouble. And Jesus enters into the messiness. Um, Okay, other questions? Yeah. Um, 
So Matthew's genealogy, I always get this mixed up, so let me get it right. So the New Testament never once calls Joseph Jesus' father. The only time it'll say something like that is when someone else thinks that Joseph is Jesus' father. And then, of course, the reason for that, right, is because God is Jesus' father. Jesus, never in the, ones in the New Testament is Jesus called Joseph's father. Okay, so in Matthew's genealogy, it starts all the way, right? Abraham, Isaac, so-and-so, you know, three sets of 14. At the very end, it says, And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathon. Mathon, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Christ. So Matthew's genealogy goes all the way down to Joseph, and it never calls Joseph the father of Jesus. It says, oh, and by the way, he was married to Mary, who's the mother of Christ. In Luke's gospel, uh, it goes the other way. So it's also through Joseph. So in Luke, uh, it's in chapter 4, verse 20, or 323. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph. It says that, by the way. That wasn't just my insertion. It says, as, um, as it was supposed. The son of Joseph, the son of Heli. It goes the opposite way. So it's through Joseph. And Jews trace genealogy through the father. Um, the only other place there's a reference to that, in Romans chapter 1, it says that Jesus was descended, um, a descendant of David according to the flesh. And a lot of scholars speculate, we don't know, but it makes sense that if David is royalty, or if Joseph's royalty, descended from David, then it makes sense that Mary is as well. And Romans chapter 1 says that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. So there's speculation that actually Mary is actually a queen, and I love that. She's poor, but she's a queen. Love that. Okay, other questions? Yeah. So aren't the genealogies different though? They are slightly different. Yeah. And that's one of the things I mean is like one of the things we're gonna see, remember like analogy is always limp. They are different. So in Luke three and Matthew one, if you line them up perfectly, we live after the enlightenment and we're like, Well, which one is it? And this is very hard for us, but we don't Jews don't think that way in the ancient world. Modern world, I'm sure they think the same way we do. But in the ancient world, they didn't. And nor did anybody else. And so the New Testament presents itself not as a scientific record, but as a witness. And so the New Testament sometimes is like, it's not exactly like worried about the same things we would be worried about. Um, and there's a fine line there. Like, we believe what the New Testament teaches, but we're also not, um, I don't know, the way that someone asks questions after kind of the scientific revolution is just very different from the way people did before. But the, yeah, there's, there's a difference in the genealogies. Okay, last thing I want to do tonight. 
So, <clears throat> really quick. Gosh, what am I doing on these or not? Next week we're going to talk about <clears throat> the kingdom that Jesus comes to establish. So maybe we can do this because we have less time than I even thought. So in Matthew chapter 1, you have the genealogy. And what I want you to see is that um, the New Testament, to follow Jesus means Jesus is your king. We're going to talk about how Jesus blows all things out of proportion. So Jesus' mission is not just to establish a kingdom the way that other ancient Near Eastern kingdoms were established. It's, it's something much, much greater. And we're going to talk about that. Um, we're going to talk about how Jesus' mission is to unite mystically. We talked tonight about St. Francis and the mystical union with God. That's what Catholicism is about. And if, if there's one thing I want you to think about over the next week, it's that um, Christianity isn't just like this historical point, that historical point. Those are interesting and they're important. Christianity is that you have a soul that longs for something more. And what Jesus came to do was to mystically unite you to the infinite God. We're going to talk about that's what sacraments are about, that's what all the things you do in the church are about. Um, okay, but the kingdom, when the early saints talk about the kingdom, they're going to talk about, yes, it's real in the world, which means the church, but also it's in your soul. The place where God wants to reign, where his kingdom reigns, is meant to be inside the person who loves him. So we'll talk about that, but okay, last thing tonight. So after the genealogy in Matthew's Gospel, you have the nativity story. So Jesus is born, we're coming up to Christmas, it's coming. Um, and uh, Jesus, there's a group of wise men, and they come to find Christ. Why are they looking for Jesus? Yeah, and they say we are looking for him who is the Messiah or the King, right, of the Jews. By the way, one really quick fact I can't resist. Why would why would wise men be looking for Jesus? Just kind of weird. It seems like like your children's storybook, and you're like, yeah, there's you know the three bears, there's Goldilocks, there's the three wise men, whatever. Here's the thing: where was where was David in exile? <laughs> that was the best answer we've got so far. <laughs> Where was he in exile? Remember? Babylon. Guess what part of the world the three wise men are from? They're from, they're from Babylon. And Daniel has a prophecy, a prophecy about the Jewish Messiah who will redeem the Really interesting stuff. That's where the wise men are from. But anyway, okay. So he's king of the Jews. The wise men come looking from him. How does Herod react to that? Kill Not well. Kill he's going to kill him. <laughs> right? So Herod's going to try to kill Jesus at the beginning of the gospel. At the end of the gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is crucified, what's the accusation that's on the cross against Jesus? The king of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, 
queen of the gates. And that's going to be Matthew 27. Um, this is Matthew. So the gospel, and here's the thing, and I, I know we're, we're 30 seconds over time. Um, what, what ancient writers love to do is they loved symmetry. Matthew's gospel, what, the, what they would do is they would make it what's called a chiasm. Chi is the Greek letter X. And there's a center point, and then it's symmetrical. This lines up with this. It's symmetrical. Matthew's gospel is symmetrical. And what happens is the center point tells you the central thing. The beginning of Matthew's gospel is about the king of the Jews that the world has no room for and is going to try to kill. Because there's no room for him. The end of the gospel is about Jesus, who is the king of the Jews, who the world has no room for, and so they kill him. The center point is Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus tells seven parables in chapter 13. Any idea what the seven parables are about? Seven parables about the kingdom. And the kingdom is about us. And it's about how God wants to plant that kingdom inside of ourselves. So cool. Okay, next week. And we're, we're going to talk two things next week. We're going to talk about Jesus' mission is to unite God, reunite God in humanity. It's much more than an earthly kingdom. It's a kingdom inside of your soul where God desires to drive out the seven deadly sins so that he can reign there and bring you joy and salvation. And um, we're going to talk about, what is the other thing we're going to talk about? I forget. But we'll talk about that, and uh, it's going to be awesome. Don't miss it. We'll talk about how all that comes together and that union with God. Okay. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I want to encourage all of you, I never know if I'm like way up here, or if you already know all of this, if you have questions, if I'm going too slow, if I'm going too fast, please let me know. Come see me. Uh, anything from you guys? If anyone did shit, we have flyers over here for our school silent auction that starts this week. There's some time for your Christmas shopping. There's some like, we actually have some really there good stuff on there uh, that helps support the school. So you'll probably buy some Christmas things to take a look. You can scan the QR code and bring it to the website. And podcast is live. Podcast is live. Gregorian Rant. It's me and Patrick. It's gone really well so far, I think. So if Turn off your Van Halen. Um, it's on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, Music and our website. So check that out. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Gregorian rant. Okay.
Hopefully it'll come up. I don't know. Tell me if it doesn't. It, it should. Yeah, on the Our Lady of Lords page, if you just oh, it's on, it's on one of the okay. announcements. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, see everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>